Hey, what's up, everybody? This week, I'm speaking with Dr. Ben Dowd-Arrow about his research on guns. This is episode 62, and the last episode of 2020 of Untenured Tracks. Research. That's uh, my main focus. Um, you, my, most of my research is on personal well-being. I have uh, just got a, yet another publication uh, on life satisfaction and uh, uh, gun ownership, uh, looking at whether or not firearms make people uh, feel more satisfied with their lives. It's uh, a continuing thread, and you know we've looked at whether or not gun owners are more afraid or less afraid than non-gun owners whether guns translate to better quality sleep uh, and whether or not guns make us happy, you know, because the Beatles have the song, Happiness is a Warm Gun. That's actually the name of the article. Uh, and uh, there's these rhetorics that the NRA and other uh, uh, actors present that suggest that guns do all these things for us. So in the case of uh, uh, happiness, you, you know, you'll see memes floating around that say things like, oh, Money can't buy happiness, but it can buy guns and ammunition, and that's the same thing, you know. And gun manufacturers use these means, the NRA uses these means, the members use their means. Um, so you see these kinds of like rhetorics, and so we wanted to evaluate those. So you know, we just got the the life satisfaction one uh, published in uh, uh, Social Science Quarterly, which is pretty exciting. Uh, and we're moving forward, looking at other aspects of, uh, you know, gun culture. Uh, currently working on uh, exploring the role of cognitive functioning, cognitive decline, and access to guns. Uh, that hopefully will translate to a pretty exciting uh, uh, publication and have an R&R on religion, supernatural beliefs, and gun uh, policy support, uh, which I'm currently working on. So that's kind of where I'm at. Like, uh, most of my stuff is focused on firearms. Okay, so I have several questions <laughs> um, for you um, so I'm I'm not a gun owner uh, I don't I don't anticipate that happening but I guess you never know uh, what's the argument that so you're not alone <laughs> what's you're not alone. 33% of Americans say they will always own guns 33% of Americans say they never will and the rest of Americans are like eh. yeah I don't yeah I don't anticipate it um, but I'm curious, like, what, why do people think that guns are the source of happiness? That seems like such an unusual connection to me. You know, um, it, it, it really, it goes back to these ideas, um, you know, uh, that suggest that stability and uh, security, like, are at the root of what make us feel secure in our lives, happy and satisfied in our lives. Um, so if you are less fearful and more 
stable and more secure, um, you'll probably re report higher levels of life satisfaction, higher levels of happiness. And, you know, one of the you know, one of the variables that really determines whether or not we're happy uh, and, or satisfied with our lives is marriage and the other is religion, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you have a strong religious background, you tend to be happier and report better life satisfaction. And if you're married, you also report. And the people who are at really into those things, marriage and uh, you know religion, also tend to make up the predominant majority of the people who are guns, hmm. right? So it becomes like a, almost a confounding. Yeah. So in the happiness uh, is a warm gun paper uh, that is at uh, Social Science and Medicine Population Health. Um, we we found that before you added in marital status, guns absolutely were correlated with self-reported rates of happiness. But the minute you added in mm -hmm. marital status, the effect goes away. Yeah. And, and it's because married people just tend to be happier, and the majority of the married people in the sample mm -hmm. were also gun owners. That makes oh. sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, if you're thinking about security and, like, having a gun to keep your family safe. Um, right. And we have these narratives, right? Like, you turn on the news. The news doesn't focus on the happy things, right? <laughs> you know, you're not going to turn it on and see a lot of feel-good stories. You're going to see, you know, violent crime. You're going to see, you know, when we talk about even the protests that are happening right now that are trying to get these messages out there that I would say most Americans need to hear, it, the media doesn't focus on those messages. Instead, it focuses on these very small, rare instances of looting, you know, and rioting that are happening, right? So you get this idea that the world that we live in is scary mm -hmm. and uncertain, right? Add that to a pandemic that we're yeah. currently experiencing that makes everything unstable and uncertain. There are people who may believe these rhetorics that a gun can make you feel more secure in your life, and they seek those out. So that's interesting. It, it reminds me of a of an article on, um, and I forget who the authors were, um, but it was on gang membership and fear of fear of victimization and its association with young men joining gangs. And what it found was that uh, boys in gangs knew like they were less fearful of being victimized even though they knew that it was way more likely to happen <laughs> because, because they had joined a gang. And so to me, that seems similar to like, I'm not worried about being shot, but I know that if I had a gun in the house, then like the chances of that are like just automatically like significantly higher, right? Like just by the, just by the fact that there's now a gun around. Um, yeah. And this is also where like some culture things start to come into, I mean, you know, I live in, in the South, um, and guns, I would argue, is a, you know, they're a big component of most people's lives in the South, uh, especially the rural South. Um, you know, I grew up in a household that had lots of guns. Um, I've handled guns most of my life. Um, we have a big military culture in the South. Uh, so guns are just there. And, you know, even so, like in our fear paper, we found that, you know, there really wasn't much difference between a gun owner and a gun owner for fear, but there were a few cases where gun owners expressed less fear, mm -hmm. right, in the case of, like, animals um, and things like that. So overall, you know, the net was mm -hmm. that gun owners have less fear. And, um, but, it, you know, it comes down to, like, you have these these things that, yeah, you know, you, they can protect you, but then you kind of start taking them for granted, 
mm-hmm. and kind of become complacent with them and kind of forget, and that effect kind of goes away. Right? Yeah. Maybe there's an initial happiness effect because you're getting to go to the range or hunt, and then life kicks in and other things and stress, right? And it kind of goes away. Yeah. Right? With the sleep paper, we found neighborhood context is really what matters. So, you know, having a gun doesn't make you sleep better if you live in a neighborhood that you perceive as bad or mm-hmm. high crime, right? So, you know, all these other factors kind of wash away any effect that the gun might have had on mental well-being. Yeah, yeah. So, in your in your work, is there a difference between people who might just own, like, one, like a handgun in the house, have, like, have one in the house for protection versus people who are kind of amassing... A, a larger collection. I'm trying to be as diplomatic as possible with the language. Yeah, so unfortunately, most data sets don't allow you to really get at that. And then the ones that do try and ask it, there are a large percentage of people who refuse to answer those questions hmm. about only more than one gun. Um, the uh, Pew, though, has uh, repeatedly shown over the years that the Americans more and more are shifting to saying they buy their gun only for protection. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, uh, you know, typically a handgun, 67%, I think, in the latest Q survey, mm-hmm. said that they bought a gun for protection. But in recent years, we've also seen um, a rise in rifles being mm-hmm. bought. So, like, uh, up until, you know, around the time of Parkland, pistols were the top-selling firearm. And... Around you know 2016, 2017, coming into the you know Parkland and stuff, you start seeing the the rifle and mostly being driven by sales of the AR-15, kind of pushing past that, so that they're almost identical. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're pretty close. Rifles have just edged out. But most people, if they only buy one gun, they usually say they bought a pistol. Mm-hmm. It's usually the second gun, you know, is something else. Yeah. Why do you think people refuse to answer that question on the, on the data and the surveys? There's this. There's also this rhetoric that is pushed by claims makers and you know, like the NRA and other politicians, that the government is going to take your guns, right? Like uh, there was a joke in the New Yorker. It's a, one of the magazines I love to read. Uh, one of their cartoons was uh, the annual well, Obama's coming to get your gun sale, right? At the gun mm-hmm. stores. Yeah. Uh, because there's this just this belief that. Uh, people are going to take them away. Yeah. And so because of that, people are afraid that you're asking these questions to create a registry, right? And because you may, like, try and inform on them and take their guns, right? It, it's it's crazy because the majority of Americans are not for banning guns. It's a very small percentage that say ban all guns and a very small percentage that say give everybody a gun, right? Most people are somewhere in the middle, mm-hmm. you know, and are just like... You know, maybe we could do other things. Yeah. Uh, because there's a big portion that say they might want to own a gun someday. They don't own one currently. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. I, I remember after the 2016 election and like stocks and gun companies plummeted because yeah. there is no longer an ability to to harp on Hillary Clinton's coming to take your guns anymore. Like a huge spike in sales in, in late 2015. Right. Uh, and, and early 2016, and then November, they, December. The gun industry held their largest profit during the eight years that Obama was in office that mm-hmm. they have ever seen. I, I want to say, you know, don't quote me on this stat, but I want to say that 
because I, uh, I, I quoted in a couple of my papers, but but 160% increase mm -hmm. in sales. And then Trump got elected and a Republican was in office, and you see it going in the opposite direction. And now they pretty much, it's a wash. They've mm -hmm. actually lost, you know, all that profit that they mm -hmm. had originally made mm -hmm. uh, because until COVID, and we locked down, and then we saw the gun sales spike again. Yeah. Um, but for August, even though it's higher than August of last year, it's it looks like it's on a downward slope again. So I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, the uh, yeah, I was surprised that the the one gun shop in my town closed. Um, had like a big going on business sale. Yeah. Um, when You're I like not Florida, the the gun ranges. Because I'm on all their mailing lists, mm -hmm. uh, they keep emailing every week. Come on down, we're still open. So <laughs> they, they haven't closed. <laughs> um. Yeah, and it's it's interesting too that like that rhetoric about the Democrats are coming to take your guns has been around since at least the nineties, right? And yeah, well, and it goes back to Clinton. Um, yeah. So it, we attribute the Brady Bill and the semi-automatic weapons ban uh, wrongly, right? Mm -hmm. We attribute it to Clinton uh, because they passed during Clinton's administration. Mm -hmm. um, but really, the president who drove that and really got it passed was Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Right? Uh, in 1992, he wrote a op-ed to the New York Times why I support the Brady Bill. Mm -hmm. uh, when the semi-automatic -web uh, weapons ban was being debated on the congressional floor, he wrote an open letter to Congress along with Jimmy Carter and uh, Gerald Ford uh, and said that, uh, and this is one of my favorite quotes, I'll paraphrase it, that while we know banning these types of weapons will not reduce all crime with guns. Research shows that banning these types of weapons will reduce the amount of crime we have. Mm -hmm. Right, which is a powerful statement and completely not what you would expect from the first presidential candidate endorsed by the National Rifle Association. Right, he was the first person endorsed by the NRA. He was considered an A plus plus rating or whatever mm -hmm. their rating system is. You know. And yet, he is the reason the Brady Bill passed because it was his press secretary who it's named after who mm -hmm. was shot during the assassination attempt on him. Mm -hmm. And then he is the one who pushed for some automatic weapons ban. But because it passed during Clinton's time, there's this, oh, Democrats take away your guns. And Democrats mm -hmm. just don't touch it. Look at Obama. He had House, the House, the Senate, and the presidency. They did not even bring up mm -hmm. a gun bill during that time. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't even need Right. Yeah. Democrats don't want to touch that because they're afraid of isolating their constituents and not winning an election. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, oh, can we talk about the religion and supernatural beliefs paper? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm curious about the supernatural beliefs part. How did you how did you measure this? How did you study this? So, so um, my my co-author on that is. Um, one of the ones who pioneered this whole idea of the supernatural evil, supernatural beliefs. Uh, and uh, it's it's a measure of things like, do you believe that hell is an absolute real, like, physical place? Mm -hmm. Do you believe the devil is an absolute real entity? Uh, demons are real, mm -hmm. tangible creatures. Right? It goes back uh, further than that, uh, though, because there's the, a belief among 
you know, certain groups, uh, evangelicals tend to express this a lot, that evil is a monolithic entity. Mm-hmm. It's this all-powerful consuming. George Bush expresses it during 9-11, following 9-11, that, you know, there is an evil force, you know, that is attacking the world, right? Um, so, you know, in a lot of ways, as a Christian, you know, you are supposed to have a gun so that you can be ready to be a soldier for God, to fight the devil. Because you're not fighting another person. You're not coming against another person. You're fighting an agent of the devil working through a person. And God is working for you. Is the just war theory. It's how we determine whether or not, how, how do you reconcile that the, you know, the Sixth Commandment says, thou shalt not kill with... I can use a gun to defend myself or fight a war or whatever. Yeah. And it's this whole idea that it's not you, it's God working through you. Yeah. Right? You, you're not the person pulling the trigger. God pulled the trigger. You're just the tool holding the gun. Mm-hmm. So this paper found that people who are more likely to hold these beliefs are more likely to be gun owners? And support certain policies that expand oh, okay. gun rights and reduce okay. gun, you know, uh, and, and reduce restrictions. Yeah, they they are more likely, and, and you know, and it just follows up other studies. Uh, we know that you know evangelicals, for instance, uh, are more likely to own a gun than the average American. They are more likely to carry a gun concealed mm-hmm. than the average American, um, and they are more likely to support like pro gun causes. Mm-hmm. Right? They're like some of the biggest you know supporters of like groups like NRA or mm-hmm. Georgia Carry or things like that. Mm-hmm. So. So it's become they become intrinsically tied together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of that is also though you know you have to understand too. There's you know it's it's really hard to disaggregate religious you know attitudes uh, from political ideologies because the you know religion tends to push a person towards a certain political ideology, which then pushes a person back into a certain religion. Right? Like you have these socializing agents here. Yeah. Uh, so you know whatever. The Republican Party is in support of, you know, the religious right makes up a large portion of their base, they're going to fall into supporting that as well. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go back to, you know, before 1977, uh, you, you would be hard-pressed to find a member, you know, of uh, any Christian denomination who said, yeah, we need to give guns and have gun rights. Fast forward, you know, into the 90s and, you uh, early 2000s and it's they go hand in hand mm-hmm. they're, they're pretty similar you know? yeah um, so this is kind of like a, a very broad question and I'm not sure if it's going to make any sense so I apologize um, but like what what do we do with your findings like like what what should people take from this so you know you know, I'm not a politician or policymaker. I would hope, though, that like policymakers do pay attention to the research, right? Uh, I'm also I want to just you know throw out there I'm in that middle group that doesn't believe we should ban all guns or ban guns or whatever, but I also believe we should have informed policy mm-hmm. decision making. Um, you know, since uh, 1998, 96, 98, we've had the Dickey Amendment, which uh, basically is a prohibition on gun research by federally funded entities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so 
we don't really, you know, this is why we're arguing always basic questions like do gun, do state laws reduce gun deaths, right? We we really can't answer that. We we can look at the stats and see that states that have stricter gun laws actually have fewer gun deaths, both homicide, suicide, and accidental, compared to states that have you know more loose laws. That's mm-hmm. that's a very easily discernible fact. But can we say it's because of the laws? No, because we can't research it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, the research that I do is addressing like really like a health perspective, right? You have this idea of the social contract and the social good, right? Where we should pass laws that protect the social good. At the same time, in America, we have this idea of individual rights and personal benefits. So if a firearm provides a personal benefit mm-hmm. that is, you know, can improve the well-being of an individual, it's really hard then to say that the societal benefit negates that, if that makes sense, right? But if the research shows there aren't really any personal benefits, mm-hmm. then you can lean heavier into, well, what is for the societal good then? Mm-hmm. What, what do we do for the societal good? Mm-hmm. Because you're not really getting much out of it, you know, so therefore we can you know, then try and protect more people, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. So hopefully they would use this research to kind of uh, uh, to inform their decisions on mm-hmm. making policy, um, you know, because our research so far shows that uh, guns don't help you sleep better, they don't make you happier, they don't make you more satisfied, but they may, you know, make you less fearful. Mm-hmm. So, you know, balance that out and figure out where is now the the, the happy medium mm-hmm. for protecting society from these tra- tragic events like we saw in Kenosha recently. Um, or, um, but while also, you know, because we have a constitutional amendment, we're one of three countries in the world with a constitutional amendment, they're all in the Western Hemisphere, um, protecting that part of our culture mm-hmm. at the same time. You know, we don't really want to infringe on, you know, that aspect of our, our culture, but at the same time, you know, we have a duty to protect each other and take care of each other. Yeah, what you said about uh, the personal benefit versus the societal gain is is really interesting, right? Because we could point to all kinds of other behavior that I could argue is beneficial to me personally, but that is still against the law. Yeah. <laughs> right? But, you know, and so, like, that's a very public health kind of approach yeah. to things, you know, and I teach public health courses, and this is one of our dilemmas that we bring up, um, is that you know, every law from a public health standpoint has to straddle that line, mm-hmm. right? Every policy that we propose from a public health standpoint has to straddle that line where it doesn't uh, hurt any personal benefits, mm-hmm. but it also is taking care of that public good, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, that's why I say from a policy standpoint, from a health perspective. Yeah. But there are, you're right, there are plenty of things that you can get a personal benefit from. I mean, there are several substances that are deemed <laughs> illegal in many states yeah. uh, that many people get personal benefits from, you know, mm-hmm. that we said not. Yeah. So. so would you say it's fair, like, I'm glad you I'm glad you mentioned the substance thing. Would you say it's a, like, it's a good parallel to think about some of the gun stuff, I guess, in terms of, like, what has happened with tobacco? Mm-hmm. 
from a public health perspective. So I'm thinking about like banning it in restaurants yeah, I mean, and stuff. I'm, but I'm all for warning labels, right? Like, I mean, okay, so you know, I've I've owned guns off and on my whole my whole life. I got rid of mine after Sandy Hook uh, because for me, guns are a toy that I take to the range, and uh, I wasn't going to, you know, I was really upset that we couldn't talk about it. You yeah, know, after children got killed. Um, but I, uh, I I do believe there should be warning labels. I believe there should be more training and stuff involved, right? Education on it. Uh, you know the you know children. Mm-hmm. You know you can read newspaper stories every day. Um, one of the ones. So I teach a class called Guns of Society. Mm-hmm. Um, one of one of the stories that they read is of where a grandmother's watching their her three year old, and she kept a gun under her pillow, and the gun went off. And the the baby in the middle of the night. Um, You know, so those kind of stories, I think, they should be intrinsic because you go back before the 70s and and, and firearm ownership had carried with it a responsibility and a weight that was, you were expected to know how to use it, respected to treat it safely, um, keep them locked up, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I grew up, you know, like I said, with guns. There was never a gun loaded out where anybody could just reach it. It yeah. was locked up, you know, um, and kept away from, you know, the kids, the grandkids, and all that. Um, you know, and then from an early age, we're taught safe, proper handling so that kids, you know, because kids get curious and want to study things they don't know. So, like, yeah, I believe that, you know, we, we could approach it similar to like we did tobacco and, you know, put warning labels put, you know, age, you know, limits on buying your own, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, we, I, we could even go a step further, like require insurance, I'd be okay with that. Um, you know, uh, training, I don't think mm-hmm. that civilians as a whole get enough training. Once upon a time, that was one of the big functions of the NRA, and they mm-hmm. just kind of moved away from it, said they would actually hold classes mm-hmm. and teach people how to use guns and safely. Um so yeah, yeah, I think we could do something like that. It's really interesting too, like the the modern history of the NRA transforming from a a pretty benign kind of just training and safety organization, and then somewhere along the way making the decision to to throw themselves throw one hundred percent of their weight into being this lobbying group and and producing some pretty fringe stuff. And then yeah, losing a ton of money and, and having to lay off everybody and and seeming to, like, swirl down the drain, right? Yeah. The Cincinnati Revolt, that's really where they changed. 1970s, May of 1977. They uh, There's a great book by, uh, by Scott Melzer that kind of touches on this. Uh, but, you know, they basically, the, the fringe element uh, of the NRA took control of the NRA and uh, that changed the course of what they were doing. I mean, if you think if you go back to the history, like originally it was three uh, three Union soldiers that put together because they were so disappointed with how poorly the Union Army fired guns, how <laughs> poor of shots and marksmen they were so they found it in the state of New York Yeah, uh, that's where the NRA actually started was hmm. New York State um, and it was a gun club and a training club, and then they eventually partnered with the government. And because the, the army saw a benefit in having 
readily trained individuals that they didn't have to train right, yeah. to move in. So they started selling guns cheaper, and that's mm-hmm. where the NRA started there. Oh, we'll go out into schools and teach children how to handle guns safely. And that was really what they were focused on, was gun mm-hmm. safety and hunting rights. They wanted to make sure people could hunt. Yeah. Uh, people could, you know, handle a gun safely, and that was great. Yeah. Then you moved into the 1970s, and they shift to um, more extreme measures of, you know, supporting things like Stand Your Ground. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the NRA supported the uh, the automatic weapons ban in the 1930s, 60s, and things, the different laws. They supported all of those laws. They co-signed those laws. You won't see them do that anymore. Yeah. Right? Um, and it, it's so, it, you know, for me, it's almost like the NRA went from protecting the gun owner and the gun gun rights, mm-hmm. you know, and society rights to protecting the interest of the gun manufacturer yeah. to for profit. Yep. Right? That, that's really, for me, that's what I see. That, yeah. That, that's all they're interested in. Yeah, definitely. Uh, they were really concerned about the gun owner. They would, you know, want simple safety measures, yeah. right? Like, they, they're against, like, uh, the fingerprint locks mm-hmm. on guns. They, they're anti that. They're against trigger locks. They're, you know, they come out and speak against, you know, all of these things. Uh, but those are things that would actually make their, their gun owners safer, mm-hmm. right? Uh, they're also against, like, mandatory trainings and stuff. They, they, they don't want any laws that require people to have trainings. And you would think that they would want that because that would inspire trust in the in the product and probably sell more of the product yeah. later. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so what... You have frozen. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, okay. So why is it called the Cincinnati Revolt? Like, what happened? So, um, at, in that, that, and that was their annual meeting uh, in May of 77. It was held in Cincinnati, Ohio. And there were rumors that the uh, NRA was going to relocate their headquarters uh, away from D.C. to Colorado. Mm-hmm. And the more fringe members took that as that the leadership was abandoning any fights legally, mm-hmm. you know, for gun rights. And so then they went in, and it's not really known who, if, if, if it was done purposely uh, by either side or if it was just coincidence. But they, they went in, there was only about a thousand of them, and they dressed up all alike. But they went in and dispersed themselves among the crowd. And the air conditioner was apparently not working in the building, right? And it, mm-hmm. so they started telling the other members that they turned it off on purpose because they want to force everybody out because they're going to, like, take away, try and, you know, our guns. They started this rhetoric, right? Yeah. They're going to take away our guns. They're, they're trying to, like, side with those who want to get rid of guns. That's why they leave in D.C. And so they... They had the vote on the leadership and voted all the leadership out, and yeah. they installed in people. One of the people they installed was a major conspiracy theorist, like believed the government killed JFK or something. I can't remember the exact conspiracy. He's the guy who created that conspiracy, though. Yeah, and you know became the 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 first new NRA president. Yeah. Uh, but that's where the really the you know there's really three NRAs. There's the, there's still the, 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 the hunting club, NRA, but you don't hear much out of them, and they don't do a lot anymore. But the NRA that we think of when we think of the NRA today is actually the Institute for Legislative Action, mm-hmm. uh, which is their lobbying arm. That's what 
Wayne Pierre, like Wayne LaPierre, and all of those, you know, are actually associated with. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really what takes off and mm-hmm. becomes like the big arm of the NRA. Um, so let's let's shift over to talking about your your classes. Um, I imagine uh, teaching in Florida, you have a lot of students who are interested in your guns and society class. Probably yeah. never never yeah, so wanting to. Fills up. It's usually capped. Yeah, it, we usually cap it between you know, depending on the semester. I've had it as low as forty five. Uh, and as high as 65. Mm-hmm. I like it somewhere in between that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, I think, 61 students this semester. Um, it's usually pretty evenly divided between those who want to expand gun rights and those who want to expand regulation, which makes mm-hmm. for a very interesting class. Um, the class is taught strictly from a, you know, here's the evidence. Let's talk about it. And then it's, then we have sections in the class where we say, well, well, does the evidence even matter considering we have this you know, constitutional amendment? Even if, if I show you evidence that says that the gun makes your life less safe, if it makes you feel safer, mm-hmm. should you still have a right to carry it based on this amendment? And so it leads to a lot of really interesting class discussions. The students tend to love the class. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we go through the from the beginning. We start with the history. Um, from the Second Amendment, the laws that the country's passed, the court challenges that we've seen, and then we move into more contemporary things and start talking about like you know things like mass shootings, suicide. Suicides make up the majority of gun deaths in the United States, mm-hmm. which most people don't know. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't know by turning on the news. Yeah, you would think that it's, it's you know um, homicides or mass shootings. Uh, mass shootings are like two percent mm-hmm. of gun deaths, um, but most are. Or suicides. Uh, so we talk about all that. We talk about the myths on both sides because both sides say things that aren't really true, mm-hmm. um, or they exaggerate, mm-hmm. or you know they um, they they paint pictures to create this us versus them, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know the, the the idea that any gun law is a path to confiscation, for instance, is just hy- is hyperbole. Yeah. Um, and the, you know, there are many laws that Americans just agree on. You know, Americans, for instance, like uh, would say that if you're on the no-fly list, you should be able to buy a gun. <laughs> but Congress won't like pass that. Eighty-seven percent of uh, Republicans, eighty-eight percent of Democrats, and among gun owners, it's basically the same. I think it's eighty-six percent of Republican gun owners and eighty-nine percent of Democratic gun owners all say if you're on the terrorist no-fly list maybe you shouldn't have a gun, and I kind of agree with that, right? Like, it makes sense if you can't ride on an airplane safely, mm-hmm. right? Why should you be able to go in a gun store and buy a gun? Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, but we have claims makers who would say, oh, well, that's just legal confiscation of rights. And that was actually what they argued, is that these people may be on there wrongly and denying their constitutional rights to a gun. Mm-hmm. Then we do a quick investigation and make sure, and then we take them off the list, right? Yeah. Um, I'd rather, I have to take my shoes off to fly on a plane now. I feel like, you know, inconveniencing someone who is on the list, you know, certain things is probably fine until the investigation's over. Yeah. And anyway, we know that people have been able to get around the no-fly list. We know that TSA has has missed so much stuff. <laughs> TSA well, is yeah, essentially a, 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 a... You know, 
not really well trained and you know uh, they don't pay them enough so the better people who would do it and you know aren't probably staying there for very long so. yeah um but, yeah, could you? So you you mentioned a couple of myths that come from the right. Um, can you can you speak to any that come from the left? Yeah. So like that's actually you know the one from the the fear paper. That's mm-hmm. really you know that what's really confronting a, a myth on the left. So like we like a lot of my research looks at these rhetorics and sees whether or not they're true or not. So like going all the way back, uh, really to the early twentieth century, Batman comics, for instance, the first issue mm-hmm. of Batman. Uh, says that criminals have guns because they're afraid and they're cowards, right? And so there's this myth, and we see it, in, you know, uh, we've seen Charles Blow of the New York Times say it, we've seen others in the media say it, uh, Rush Hour, put down your gun and fight me like a man, uh, you know, Friday, you know, put your guns down and fight like a man. There's all these myths that cowards and the fearful use guns, and then that paints the gun owner in this broad, you know, unattractive uh, stroke of being a coward, mm-hmm. and that's why they have a gun, because they're afraid of everything. And, you know, what we found is overall, you know, uh, what we found is mostly there's no difference. Gun mm-hmm. owners and non-gun owners report fears pretty much the same, but that, you know, overall, net, the gun owners were actually less, you know, fearful. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one of the first myths. So that's one of the mm-hmm. things that the gun owners are just cowards and that's why they have a gun and that's not really true hmm. like a lot of people and that may if you come into a, any discussion with an insult the other side is not going to pay attention and listen yeah yeah so that the gun ownership wasn't motivated by fear right yeah so like in that paper we use uh, two perspectives do are guns a symptom of fear mm-hmm. meaning does a person buy a gun because they're afraid or our guns more have more of a soothing effect, right? Mm-hmm. You know, just and that you know that's the other theoretical side. And we found so we found evidence for that soothing effect that they were less afraid, mm-hmm. but no evidence at all that guns were something of fear. It's interesting. Um, so to go to go back to your your classes and when you're able to bring this in, um, what kinds like do you do anything to kind of prep the students? Because um, I, I can see a, a class like this going sideways really quickly, right? Because of the insults and the myths and stuff. Like, what yeah. what type of of like pre work are you doing? Yeah. So the first first very first day of class and in, in the face to face, it's a little different with the zooming because uh, I can just mute people now. But in the first uh, <laughs> first day of class in a face to face. Um, after we talk a little bit about the syllabus, we spend like 10, 15 minutes on stuff like that. We move into uh, covering uh, George Washington's uh, Code of Civility. Um, and we look at his his remarks on how to talk to people civilly. And then we, you know, we, we practice. And it, it basically goes something like this, you know, where I have a point that I want to make. I would say, hi, my name is Ben, and stand up. Uh, here is what I believe about X. And then sit back down. And the next person that wanted to speak, if they wanted to add to that person's point or counter that person's point, the first thing they would have to do is say, Hi, my name is Ben, and I would like to uh, either build on this person and say their name, uh, you know, point, and add this. Or if they wanted to disagree, they would be like, Hi, my name is Ben. I want to uh, first say, Here's where I agree with it, and name that person. 
and start from a point of agreement because in most cases, most of us can find a point of agreement. There's very few things that people say in you know in a college classroom that I've found that you just there's nowhere to start. There's no common ground. Um, here's what I agree with, and then say, but I disagree here, and here's why. Mm-hmm. You know? And I found that that makes it civil. It also forces the student. Because they're not allowed to speak if they can't start from that point of agreement. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I may, I'll stop them and say, oh, where, where's your point of agreement? And if they don't have one, the well, you need to sit and think about it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so I found it forces the student, first of all, to listen mm-hmm. to everything the other person says. Right. And then come back, you know, you know, at it and say, yeah, like, I, I mean, you know, I agree with everything you said here. You know, I just don't agree here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the students also appreciate that because sociology tends to skew more towards liberal-minded students. Mm-hmm. And so the more conservative students, you know, might in other areas feel afraid to express why they want guns or why they feel they need guns. Um, and they actually end up feeling empowered. And so, like, some of the best things uh, that I've gotten for student reviews were students that would say things like, while I didn't change my views, I love this class and I think about it like a lot differently now mm-hmm. and like I really understand where the other side's coming from. So. That's interesting that they they <laughs> say it hasn't changed my views but I think about it differently. So like yeah. AKA it's changed my views. <laughs> like it's Yeah, and it has. But you know, they may still be like very pro gun or pro regulation or whatever, but they are at least, you know, they understand too, like, well why does the other side believe what they believe and what does the evidence say and how does that evidence fit my worldview, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, it in any of my classes that I teach, I'm not there to uh, make a student be a me when they believe, right? Like, I'm not trying to replicate myself. I am really trying to force students into uncomfortable positions where they have to think about an issue that they wouldn't normally think about it from a side that they wouldn't normally think about. So, like, the first assignment in the gun class is a persuasive essay where I randomly assign a position. They're either very pro-gun, talking to uh, a group of people who just survived some kind of mass event, mass tragic event, to explain why they need to expand gun rights, or they are, you know, very pro-regulation, talking to a group of people who are like, you know, the NRA or whatever, to explain why we need to have regulation. And they have to be persuasive and use evidence and talk about it in a way. And that uh, that makes a lot of students, like, they're like, can I please switch sides? And I'm like, no. You know? <laughs> um, because, you know, this is, I want you to really think about this and come at this position you know, because you can't debate a topic if you don't really know what the other side believes. Right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's lost in the Twitter world, where you get 140 characters and you think you know everything about a topic. <laughs> yeah. So. Does that happen on Twitter? I haven't experienced that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely think that. Uh, yeah. Um, Sorry. Uh, yeah, like I think the, the the quality of the discourse is, is has a deeply diminished <laughs> um, over over the past several years um, because of because of social media and because I, I think people well I mean I don't think I know people don't have to say stuff face to face 
and are, are quick just to dive into partisan points. Um, yeah. So like, and, the, I say, <clears throat> and I really hate that partisan divide, right? You know, I don't like this us versus them because tumblers are <coughs> more nuanced than that. You know, um, they, the, and so like that's one of the things I try and break in in this gun class is this whole idea that every Democrat believes this, every Republican believes that, and it's my team versus your team uh, because that's just that's a not reality, right? And that also just really overly simplifies and generalizes. You know, a point of view because there's a lot of there's a lot of overlap. Mm-hmm. Now there are major points, right? They, you will be hard pressed to find any Republicans who say ban the AR-15, mm-hmm. and you'll find probably many Democrats who say, yeah, you should. Uh, but it's not 100 percent on either side, mm-hmm. right? You know, there's still some overlap where there are some who say, well, you know, I don't really need it because I don't hunt with it. Um, so you know, and. It, there and then there are those that have, there are Democrats that are very pro gun. You know, uh, Bernie Sanders, like a lot of people don't know, but he's from Vermont and he's supported gun rights. Now he's got some gun control things that he's pushed for, but he also supports gun rights mm-hmm. pretty pretty well too because it's a hunting state mm-hmm. and he doesn't want to upset his constituents and so he, you know, is there for them. And so like when he pushes for things, he knows it's things that they're not really going to be upset with him for. <laughs> I think immensely. You know, I don't want to say that all things have compromised. That that's not what I'm saying at all. I want to make that clear mm-hmm. because there are some things we should not compromise on, right? Like uh, any form of actual injustice, there should be no compromise. There. Yeah. But uh, for most things, like you know, I think we've we, we've shifted to it's either going to be 100 percent my way or not at all. And I hate that. Yeah, yeah, and I think like even with something like taxes, right? Where that that seems to be like the most obvious place for there to be compromise, right? Or or government spending too. Um, you know, I want a tax rate of twenty five percent, and I want a tax rate of ten percent. So let's have a tax rate of seventeen percent and call it a day, right? Like everybody everybody wins out of that. I want to I want to spend I don't know a hundred billion dollars on a thing, and you want to spend two hundred billion. Let's let's split the difference and call it one hundred and fifty. Like why are we? Why are we going back to our corners and and being so irresolute and just acting like toddlers about this stuff? Yeah, and and then it causes nothing to get done. Yeah. So then we just actually don't do anything to help anybody. You know, I get I get it. We waste a lot of money in Mm -hmm. this country. You know, on uh, in our budget, Mm -hmm. Uh, military expenditures make up the vast majority 
we spend more than like the next 19 countries combined, and the closest one to us is China, and we spend four times as much in Europe than China. Maybe if we spent as much as the next 14 countries combined, <laughs> yeah. right, we'd still be the most powerful military in the world, but what can we do with all those hundreds of billions of dollars? Yeah. You know, this flipped over. They could fund Medicaid for all. They could fund college for all. They could yep. improve the education, improve infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Right? We have bridges falling apart in in, in certain states, right? But it, you know, we we can't we can't agree to say okay, like what's best? Mm-hmm. And instead, again, we make it a us versus them. So it's like, oh, poor people and, and yep. welfare, right? It needs to be good, and that makes up such a small fraction mm-hmm. of our budget, right? And the money we give to the wealthy, the welfare, it, you know, is almost uh, ten times, you know, higher, you know, than what we give to the poor, mm-hmm. right? But nobody talks about that. Yeah. Right? Welfare for the rich is good business, but for the, for the poor is, uh, you know, uh, entitlement and uh, dependency. Yeah. Right? Um, so, yeah, it, it's a, it's, it, it the lack of compromise, the mm-hmm. lack of empathy. Yep. And, and I think that's also really noticeable right now, mm-hmm. you know, where you have certain politicians say, like Ramon Dye, you know. And, uh, Adam Carolla was on Twitter the other day and said uh, that only the, you know, the only people who are going to die from this are old people and those with conditions. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking that is like the most horrible thing mm-hmm. a human being can say about other people. Is their life not valuable just because they're over 60 or they have some kind of condition, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think of how to <laughs> how to respond to what Adam Carolla said without sinking to his level. I hope nothing bad ever happens to Adam Carolla. I yeah, hope for yeah. his sake nothing... I hope he doesn't just suddenly find a heart condition or whatever. Afford, you know, he can afford to treat it. But it's just, it's just, you know, that, that's just indicative of this like lack of empathy yeah. that, that we're seeing. Yeah, and, and there's a, there's there's this. It's not. This isn't limited to just Republicans. You know, it's easier to show when Republicans say it because you know it's, mm-hmm. you, you often see more of those. I think, but it's it's not limited to just one side. There there's a lack of empathy, you know, across the spectrum, and it's it, it hurts my mm-hmm. heart. Oh yeah. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of soul searching about like my function as a as an educator because of the number of students I've seen graduate who are sort of not sort of who are kind of like misanthropic already, right? Like I I don't like people. I I like dogs more than people. Like that type of language. Um, when you are, you just finished a major that is designed to have you helping people, and you're telling me that you really, I really hate people. Then why did you, <laughs> why did you come here? And then what was my role? How did I somehow unintentionally foster this environment where you're graduating with these really negative and toxic attitudes? And what is, what has been the role of the larger university in, in encouraging this, and my colleagues in, in encouraging this? And it's really heartbreaking. Honestly, um, and, you know, a lot of that. You want to talk about myths, right? Myths related to American culture. There's this myth of the the individualist, right? This idea that bootstraps and taking yourself on places on your own. You know, most people don't know that that pick yourself up from your bootstraps is taken originally from a piece of 19th century satire, 
and in the original text it said, this is so easy that you can stand in front of a barbed wire fence, lift up your bootstraps, <laughs> and just go over the fence. Yeah. Right? And it's meant to highlight an impossible task. But today, when we say that, it's all about being an individual. And then we forget how government policy, you know, through the uh, Great Depression all the way up through the 1950s and 60s, built the white and middle class and enabled them to generate wealth mm-hmm. and, you know, become, you know, stable in society. And, you know, yeah, Grandma worked hard. She did. She worked really hard to get what she had. But she didn't do it by herself. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a helping hand there. But we, we mythologize this idea that it was just their hard work mm-hmm. alone that, that got them where they are. I mean, the only reason we pay 10% down from a house is because of welfare, you know. The government covers the other 90% of the loan, so the, the, the Wells Fargo or Bank of America will sell you a house with only 10% down. Um, but that's welfare, mm-hmm. you know. But we overlook how that's helping us. And instead, we focus on, in this country, we have a habit of focusing on those who are beneath us and, and with scorn, you know, instead of empathy. Yeah, and then having, like, the reverse attitude with people who are above us, right? Right, right. Yeah, those who are above us were like, oh, they must have worked so hard, you know. Uh, that's, you know, I talk about that in, uh, my, in, in my classes, talking about how you know, how many years it takes to become just $1 billion and it's several thousand. Like, if you earn $250,000 a year, you know, you would have to have, it would have been well before the coming of Columbus, you know, in order to have just $1 billion, mm-hmm. right? You can't work for that much money. You really just, you, you don't. You can't, right? yeah. Um, and, you know, hey, you know, this is another thing that you, you used to say, uh, you know, where the, the, the wealthy would not um, brag as much about how much wealth they have. You look at somebody like Warren Buffett, mm-hmm. who, you know, he says he hasn't bought a suit in 10 years. Yeah. His car is old, right? Lives in a smaller house. His house is probably smaller than mine. Yeah. Um, and compare that to others who, like, buy planes and put their names on everything and stuff like that, gold toilets. Um, <laughs> Yeah. You know, to me, all of that is also another sign of a lack of empathy for those who have mm-hmm. you know, have less. Yeah. I, so I've been I've been doing a lot of research on like the history of crime policy stuff, and I, I've fallen into a rabbit hole with the early twentieth century. Um, it, it's such a fascinating period of time. Um, but John Rockefeller Jr. is such an interesting guy. Because his, I mean, Rockefellers were, I assume, still have loads of money, but um, Senior was the wealthiest man in the world, and Junior's like, I don't know how I can live with this, (laughs) and I'm not really into the business side of things, and oh my god, my family's fortune has ruined so many people's lives, Um, and devotes a a considerable amount of his, his own wealth towards these social service programs, and and he he had a big uh, he had a big thing about like what, I mean back then it was called white slavery laws, um, but it's like anti sex work stuff, um, trying to, to end prostitution. Um, he he funded all this work towards that, and it just worries me that you don't see that type of mentality 
anymore from from the from the ultra wealthy, you know right. the Jeff Bezos. You know, and, I'm sure that there are some that still do it. I mean, there are a couple. Warren Buffett and Bill Gates are pretty big about making people know about their charitable giving. I would like to hope that there are plenty of wealthy people who do give, like you know, very well. Um, but you certainly don't hear about it. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about, like, Jeff Bezos, the wealthiest man in the history of the world, saying, like, I don't know what to do with all my money. (laughs) And and just wanting to, like, I don't know, throttle him and and say, like, how could you not, like, look around you? How do you not know what to do with this money? You could end, you could end so many social problems with... Bezos alone, yeah, Bezos alone could solve, like, world hunger. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. Uh, He could end poverty. He could end child starvation. He could end, you know, educational disparities. Like he he has it within his power, you know, uh, to do that, um, because he has such an obscene amount of wealth. Mm -hmm. And that's the other. You know, I think that's something too that the average American, I don't think, can actually understand just how much money that is. Yeah. Right? It's astronomical. It's hard yep. to even picture what a million dollars looks like, oh, yeah. let alone almost a trillion mm-hmm. dollars, right? Yeah, Amazon, I think, was almost one trillion dollars yep. in profit. Um, and so it's really hard to, to even comprehend yeah. how many buildings that would fill up from floor to ceiling. <laughs> you know, it's like Scrooge McDuck's yeah, really. tank that you could swim around <laughs> I bet he does. I bet he's got a vault full of gold, gold the balloons that he's <laughs> backstroking through, and it's yeah, it's interesting. You know, I would. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, and like a, a random, a random piece of trivia. So, um, Amazon is trying to get into the podcast hosting game. Not trying to. They are, um, and so they've they've cut deals with like so many smaller platforms uh this is uh, this is hosted through a company called podbean um but one of the criteria if you want to have amazon host your podcast on their new their new system is that you can't say anything critical about amazon (laughs) and so you can trade off right like possible massive exposure but as long as you as long as you don't say anything negative about Amazon's surveillance practices or their super scary harmful new uh, surveillance technology the the halo um, coming coming soon and, and the ring doorbells and everything so suffice it to say untenure tracks will never be hosted on Amazon um, it goes against no, everything that we, we need to be able to critique those things like I got a, a notification from Facebook that they are changing their uh, algorithm so that if there's anything that and they don't specify what this means, but anything that can be viewed as harmful to Facebook huh. uh, will not be shown to people on your friends list. Oh wow! So basically, they're gonna censor you. So like, if you critique them, like, nope, no one's seeing this. Yeah. You know. Uh, so <laughs> that's uh, to me, I, yeah, like insane. We're talking from 1984. Yeah, kind of I gotta get in some some a few final posts, imploring my friends to get off Facebook and talking about how just infinitely punchable Mark Zuckerberg looks. 
Um, so <laughs> I, I am trying to really like wean myself completely off of social media, except for Twitter. I use that to share research and kind of keep up with other people that I really like their their research. Yeah. Uh, but like, um, I just have so many like pictures, you know, and stuff on Facebook mm-hmm. that, like, you know, I've used them as a free photo server, uh, so I don't have to keep them on hard drives. Yeah. Um, but if I can figure out a way to like easily migrate that stuff, I would probably close the Facebook account. I just I'm not a big fan of like the, mm-hmm. the privacy things that we've given up. Yeah, you know, me too. For those. So, so for people listening to this, uh, a, a free, uh, I guess, FYI, if you go into your Facebook account and you click on download data, it will download every, it will give you uh, a gigantic zip file of everything you've ever posted. Um, every, every picture, every text post, um, I think like close to a hundred percent of stuff. Um, now if you like participated in, in like community pages or whatever, I don't think that comes with it. Um, but yeah, download your data that will give you everything that Facebook has. It has, uh, it's kind of scary <laughs> because, I mean, even with pictures that you upload it, like you don't realize all the data that's attached to the pictures, like the location and everything, the the type of camera it was taken on. Yeah. You know, like um, for the longest time, I refused to put Messenger on the phone just because, in their terms of service, they are like, we can turn your microphone and camera on whenever we want. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I was kind of forced into it because uh, of some family things going on. <coughs> Uh, yeah, it's really scary the level of privacy that we surrender, you know, for mm-hmm. these services. And so, on that super cheerful note, <laughs> we will wrap up our conversation today. Thank you so much for coming on, Ben. Thank you, Andy. It was a pleasure being here. Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So. I hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. (laughs) So if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Tracks or me at HeyDrWill. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.